Well, good morning once again. Good to see everybody. If you're new with us, welcome. It's good to see you this morning. If you're one of our regulars, you know that we have put our study in Philippians on hold for a few weeks to present a series that God laid in my heart just a few weeks ago and started working on it, and he then laid it on my heart to actually present it. Wasn't really planning on it, but, you know, that's how the Lord works sometimes. And so it's a series I'm calling The Top Ten Lies of the Devil. The Top Ten Lies of the Devil. We know he's a deceiver. We know Jesus said that when he speaks lies, he's speaking his own native language. It's all he ever does is lie. He's the father of lies. Paul told us we're not ignorant of Satan's devices, which would include we understand how he works. We're not going to fall for his lies because you got to know the word really well. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, Faithfully, you'll know the truth. The truth will make you free from the devil's deceptions. So for the last couple of weeks, we have been looking at some of Satan's favorite lies. He constantly tries to get people to fall for, starting with number 10, counting down to number one. Now, as I said a couple of weeks ago, please don't come up here and say, well, I think lie number seven should be lie number three. It's not an exact science. Doing my best. All right. But here's what I came up with, prayed about it, felt God gave to me. Starting with number 10 and counting down to number 1. Number 10, happiness will be yours when you own, achieve, or experience you fill in the blank. So happiness is yours when you own a home, when you achieve wealth or uh, earn your degree, or when you experience success or get married something along those lines it's always something that i need to pursue because then i'll be happy if i achieve or i get what i'm striving for all right that was line number 10 line number nine we looked at already god can't exist because there's so much evil and suffering in the world number eight there is no absolute truth Whatever a person believes is their truth. Number seven, you're so bad, God can't love you and wants nothing to do with you. Line number six, hell isn't real. Line number five, it's too late for you. Too late for you to change by receiving Jesus as your Savior, becoming a Christian. Well, that brings us this morning to the fourth lie on the list number four god is an angry god who's looking for any reason to punish you look it is true that god hates sin and he's angry with those who practice it the psalmist said in psalm 7 verses 11 to 13 god is a just judge and god is angry with the wicked every day if he does not turn back he will sharpen his sword he bends his bow and makes it ready. He also prepares himself instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. Yes, God hates sin. And will eventually judge it on a worldwide scale. It's called the tribulation period. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't still love sinners. That doesn't mean because he hates sin, and he hates when people practice sin, that he's not holding his arms out still to sinners and saying, Come to me. I love you. I sent my son to die for you. 
I want you to be my child. I want to forgive you your sins that you might live with me forever in my kingdom. So this morning, though, I'm directing this one, this lie at Christians primarily. Not that unbelievers don't fit into this. But I'm kind of thinking of how the devil uses this quite a bit with believers, Christians, who when they blow it, Satan whispers in their ear, God is angry with you. Don't even think about saying you're sorry. You've blown it with this sin numerous times. And so some Christians buy into that. And they think that God is angry, that God can't forgive them. God only wants to punish them now. And guys, this is one of the devil's favorite lies to keep God's children alienated from him and to neutralize their witness for him. This lie probably started in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned against God by eating the forbidden fruit. And when they did, they hid themselves out of fear. Genesis 3, verse 8. And it tells us that when we sin, and this has gone on since that our first parents, okay, um, that when we sin, just like they did, we sin against God, the devil tells us that God is angry with us, causing us to want to hide ourselves from him. How do we do that? Well, we avoid God by not going to church, by not praying, reading the Bible. We avoid God by not fellowshipping with other Christians. Now listen, when you're not doing those things, what's going to fill the void? Reading the Bible, praying, going to church, fellowship. You're not doing that anymore, so what's going to fill the void? The old life. The old worldly friends and worldly activities is going to fill. And that's what Satan is ultimately looking for when he condemns you. He wants to alienate you from God. God's your enemy. So you're going to run to those that you know at one time were your friends. And yet when God came looking for Adam in the garden, and he called out in the garden, Adam, where are you? We weren't there to hear the inflection in God's voice. There are some that believe because of their theology that the voice of God to Adam was harsh. It was like the harsh voice of an arresting officer. Adam, where are you? Get over here. What did you do? You're in for it now, buddy. I don't believe that's how God handled it. First of all, God wasn't surprised. But I believe it was the tender voice of a heartbroken father. Adam, where are you? Because every day God came down in the cool of the day in fellowship with Adam and Eve face to face. He knew that because he knew they had sinned. And that's why they were hiding themselves. So why did he ask the question? To get them to confess. Now how do I know that for sure? How can I know that the voice of God was not harsh but gentle, loving, and broken hearted even? I know it because I know the character of God is represented in the pages of his word. Let me just read to you Psalm 103, verses 10 to 14. I'll read it to you the NLT. The psalmist said, He does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love toward those who fear him is as great as the heights of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender 
and compassionate to those who fear him. For he knows how weak we are. He remembers that we are only dust. You remember the parable that Jesus gave of the prodigal son. And this parable, in part, talked about how one father, who represents God the Father, dealt with a wayward son. This father, as you know the story, had two sons. The younger came to him one day and said, Dad, I, you know, I kind of want to get out on my own. Kind of tired of working on the family farm. You know, I want to spread my wings and experience life. So I like to have my inheritance now. Now, in Jewish culture, that was really tantamount to saying to his father, Dad, I wish you were dead. Can I have my inheritance? Father could have disowned him on the spot. But he was gracious, gave the kid his inheritance. He went away to a far country and blew it on prodigal living, wasteful living. You know, wine, women, song, you know, that whole thing. Of course, when you got money, you're buying drinks. I haven't done that in quite a few years. When you're buying drinks for people, you got a lot of friends. You run out of money, not so much. So you ran out of money, and a famine hit that land. And so he, the only job he could find was slopping pigs. Now, if you're a Jew, that's about as low as you can get. They were the ultimate defiled animals. And he comes to his senses and said, you know, what am I doing here? My father's slaves have plenty of food to eat. I'm going to go back home, tell my dad, I am sorry. Please forgive me. I'm not worthy to be called your son anymore. I just want to be one of your hired servants. Now, the key to the story, of course, is that as he starts walking home, the father saw him coming afar off. I believe it was because the father had been praying for him and was looking for him every day for his return. When the father saw his son coming, he broke all protocol and ran to his son. Jewish fathers didn't run to their son, not wayward sons at least. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and the son went into his little spiel. Father cut him off, said, bring a robe, put sandals on his feet. Slaves didn't wear sandals. Put a signet ring on his finger, power of attorney over the family business. For this son who was lost is found. This son who was dead is now alive. That's how our Heavenly Father greets wayward children. He doesn't hold anything against us. He rejoices that we've come back. But this can also apply to unbelievers that, listen, if God was angry with you and only wanted to punish you, which is a lot of way a lot of unbelievers think, if that was true, he wouldn't be inviting you to come to him and be one of his children. I mean, there's dozens and dozens of verses. I'll give you a few. Revelation 3.20, Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, the door of your heart. Anyone who opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me will have fellowship, which speaks of oneness. Romans 10, verse 13, For whoever, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 5, verse 8, But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. God loved you so much before you were saved, he sent his son to die for you. And of course, John 3, 16 and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not have to perish in hell, but would have everlasting life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. 
He's inviting you to come to him, to be his child. Well, that brings us to line number three on our list. There is no need to hurry to get your life right with God. You have plenty of time. This is the lie that Satan uses quite effectively with those who are younger. Those who maybe grew up in church. Those who have heard the gospel preached many times over the course of their lives. And as such, they already believe in God, in Jesus, in heaven, and in hell. But haven't yet made a commitment to Jesus as their Savior. And so in that regard, the devil doesn't try to take their faith from them. Instead, he encourages them in their faith. What are you talking about? He's very clever. He's very clever. He makes them feel that, you know, they're better than an unchurched person, a person who refuses to believe in Jesus Christ, that their faith makes them closer to God. It's interesting how the mind games. Actually, the Greek... We're not ignorant of Satan's devices is a Greek word that means mind games. The devil plays mind games in so many ways. And one of them is to tell somebody that, look, that rank unbeliever, they're bad. But you've grown up in church. You do believe in Jesus, although you've not committed your life to him. But you're on the right road. It'll happen. But right now, you're in a better place. God loves you more than that unchurched guy or gal down the road there you're closer to god if you grew up in church then you'd remember what the bible says pride goes before a fall and a haughty look before destruction or hell and so again with these people the devil doesn't try to take their faith from them he actually uses it against them he lets them wrap themselves in their faith thinking it's some kind of a security blanket they know they haven't gone all the way but at least they do believe and that gives them some kind of special protection and or favor with God until they're ready to get serious about Jesus and accept him as their Savior and start walking with him. Little do they realize they're playing right into the devil's trap. How you say In what way? Well, let me answer that question with a story. It goes like this, and I quote, A minister of the gospel determined on one occasion to preach on the text now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. While in his study thinking, he fell asleep and dreamed that he was carried into hell and sat down in the midst of a conclave of demonic spirits. They were assembled to devise means whereby they might keep people out of heaven. One rose and said, I will go to the earth and tell the humans that the Bible is all a fable, that it is not divinely appointed of God. No, that will not do. The Bible has much evidence connected to it that proves it is the divine word of God. Another said, well, let me go. I will tell men that there is no God, no Savior, no heaven, and no hell. No, 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 that will not do. We cannot make men believe that because they know in their heart those things exist. Suddenly one arose with an especially diabolical countenance and said, I will journey to the world of men. And I will tell them that there is a God, that there is a Savior, that there is a heaven, and yes, that there is a hell too. But I will tell them there is no hurry. You have time. Tomorrow will do. Satan declared, you will deceive millions. Go. 
And so, guys, this is one of the greatest lies the devil feeds people who grew up in church and yet have not committed their lives to Jesus as their Savior. He has his demons whisper in their ears something to the effect, Look, you're young. You've got plenty of time to get your life right with God. Have some fun first. Sow your wild oats. Then get your life right with God by receiving Jesus as your Savior. Until then, there's no rush. You've got plenty of time. And yet the Bible warns, James 4, verse 14, you do not know what will happen in the future. Your life is like a vapor. It's here today and gone tomorrow. Look, there are stories that we come across every day in the news of people dying suddenly. People who got up one morning, had their whole day planned out but who never saw the end of that day because their life was taken from them suddenly. Many were young people who had their whole lives ahead of them, but were suddenly taken in the prime of life without warning, without time to repent and receive Jesus as their Savior, even though, again, I'm sure a good number had grown up in church, had heard the gospel many, many times, and some of them, probably many of them, fully intended at one point to get right with God, to get serious, and receive Christ. They do believe Jesus is the way who died for their sins, that Jesus is their, the only way to heaven. They believe all that. It's not that they're atheists. It's not that they're agnostics. But they don't feel they want to get right with God now by accepting Christ because they still have a lot of fun things, quote-unquote, which means sinful things, to experience. You know, I, I remember this story, and of course there's literally hundreds and hundreds of these stories. I guess this one stuck with me. It happened a few years ago because it was close. Arlington Heights. And because it so fits into what we're talking about, I thought I'd share it with you. It was a... Uh, father and, uh, and mother and a daughter. Saturday morning, beautiful day, they were taking their daughter to her soccer game. I don't know if it was a playoff game or a tournament game, but I'm sure they were, you know, beautiful day, going to see our daughter play soccer, very enjoyable, and they probably had a whole day planned around it after the the, the, uh, the game, they maybe go out to get something to eat and do something that day. And so they get in the car and they're driving to the soccer field, stop at a stop sign and start to go through it when all of a sudden a guy who had stolen a car coming at 100 miles an hour T-bones him. I don't think they ever saw him coming. I don't think they ever knew what hit him. They, they died instantly. And, and I thought to myself, here's a family got up thinking that this was going to be an awesome day, a day spent together, a day enjoying some time together. I don't know where this family was with the Lord. I hope they knew the Lord. But if they didn't, it proves the point that your life could be taken from you suddenly, without warning. Amos, I believe it was the prophet Amos, cried out to Israel, applies to America. Prepare to meet your God. Prepare to meet your God. Always be ready to meet God. Make sure your life is right with Him, and so on. But guys, how many young people have died in the past few years from fentanyl poisoning? 
I think we lost 107,000 last year, many of them young people. Young people who bought some drugs off the internet, thinking that they were drugs that would help them sleep at night, having trouble sleeping, or would help them cope with the stress of school as they were coming into finals. Bought something off the internet, popped it in their mouth, and died. Just right there, dropped dead. We had a young guy in the church years ago, grew up in the church, and he was about 21 at this time. I saw him at our Easter service that year, and the next evening, Monday night, had his whole life ahead of him, just got a new job, very excited, good salesman, working for a company, doing real well, just 21, natural born salesman. Saw him that Sunday, Monday night, comes home from work, spends a little time talking to his mom, goes downstairs to where his bedroom was. He bought a couple of small pills, heroin. His dad found one of them on his dresser. He said, you couldn't believe how small it was. He popped that thing in his mouth, put some Easter candy in his mouth, and died before he could even chew it. I don't know what was in this stuff, but it killed him instantly. I think he was saved. Praise God. But he wasn't walking with the Lord, obviously. I'm wondering, though, for those who die suddenly, and maybe you've heard the gospel, but have never really, though, prayed to receive Christ as their Savior. I'm wondering... How many people are going to wind up in hell who fully intended to get their life right with God at some point down the road? Only to have their life snuffed out quickly without giving them time to repent. And that's why the Bible cries out to us, today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow isn't promised to anyone. If you hear him speaking to your heart about Jesus Respond immediately and receive Jesus as your Savior. All right, well, that brings us to lie number two on Satan's top ten list of favorite lies. There are many roads that lead to heaven. Now, this, is, this lie is one of Satan's most effective and deadly in his arsenal. It's a lie that has been embraced by many, many people over the centuries resulting in the destruction of untold millions in hell. And that is why it is one of, one of the devil's favorite lies, because it is so effective. And guys, the big reason this lie is so effective is because it plays into the pride of fallen man. Pride that says, look, nobody's going to tell me what to believe. Nobody's going to tell me what way to take to get to heaven, if they even believe in heaven. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to get to heaven on my terms. No one's going to tell me, you know, what road to take. I'm going to choose my own way. Here's the problem with that. Jeremiah 10, 23. O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. Why is that? Because Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. You're never going to walk with God with a fallen heart that is in control. And guys, the devil knows all of this only too well. And he uses it against unsaved men and women whose hearts are deceived by pride. Deceived into believing that people of all religious persuasions and belief systems are going to get to heaven. Now, why do they so fervently believe this? They believe it because 
they believe in tolerance as a sacred virtue and God as the ultimate example of wokeness and inclusiveness. And therefore, they believe that there must be many roads, many ways that will get a person into heaven because not to believe that would be narrow-minded and bigoted. And God is not narrow-minded and bigoted, right? And so they believe that as long as a person is sincere in whatever they believe, no matter how bizarre or unbiblical it might be, that because God is who he is, well, he has to honor their faith. He has to accept them into heaven. After all, they're sincere. Even though the Bible doesn't say God accepts sincerity for righteousness, it says he accepts faith in his truth, his son for righteousness, right? But guys, as I thought about this, I thought about this for a, a while and thought, you know, I really believe that this belief on their part is a form of virtue signaling. Virtue signaling, which the dictionary defines this way. It's the expression of an opinion that demonstrates a person's good character or moral, moral correctness and, and superiority on a particular issue. However, they're either, either completely oblivious or defiantly rebellious to the warning of God on the subject. Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a person, but in the end thereof, it's the way of death. Listen, God has told us in his word that all roads, all belief systems do not lead to heaven. That there is a right way and there's a wrong way. And no matter how sincere a person is, their faith will not save them if it's rooted in Satan's lies rather than in the truth of God's word. Now at this point, I'm going to have you turn to Matthew 7. So we can read the clear warning of the Lord Jesus Christ given in the Sermon on the Mount on this subject. And I want to read to you verses 7 to uh, excuse me, chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. I want to read it first out of the NLT, where Jesus said, You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. Now, guys, Matthew 7, 13, and 14 are two of the most quoted verses, certainly in the Sermon on the Mount, but possibly in the entire Bible. If you study the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, this is where Jesus is bringing, he's the ultimate evangelist. And this is where he is bringing everything he has said to its evangelistic climax and conclusion. That's why it's quoted so much. If it was good enough for the Lord Jesus Christ to use to bring sinners to him, it's good enough for us, right? And I think along with John 3.16, probably right up there in most quoted verses in the Bible. But listen, Jesus is here telling us that every person has to decide for themselves which way, which way they will go, which gate they will enter into, which path they're going to walk in life, either the broad way or the narrow way. Now, guys... Don't miss this. This is very important. The important thing to understand in what Jesus is saying is that both ways, both ways are marked this way to God and heaven. The broad way isn't marked this way to hell or else no one would be tempted to go down that road. So then you're asking, what is the broad way? What does it represent? 
Well, very simply, the broad way is religion, but not any religion, not just any religion. It's what some have called easy believism. In modern 21st century American culture, it would represent woke liberal Christianity. One well-known pastor put it this way, he said, and I quote, The way that is broad is the easy, attractive, inclusive, indulgent, permissive, and self-oriented way of the world. There are few rules, few restrictions, and few requirements. All you need to do is profess Jesus, or at least be religious, and you are readily accepted in that large and diverse group. Sin is tolerated, truth is moderated, and humility is ignored. God's word is praised but not studied, and his standards are admired but not followed. This way requires no spiritual maturity, no moral character, no commitment, and no sacrifice. It is the easy way of floating downstream in, and he quotes Ephesians 2.2, in the course of this world, floating downstream with the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, uh, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, end quote. So that's the, the broad way. What does the narrow way or the narrow gate represent? Well, the narrow gate very simply represents Jesus, who is the only way into heaven. John 10, 9, Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father Nobody gets to heaven except through me. And then, of course, the famous words of Peter in Acts 4, verse 12, who he is exalting the name of Christ. And he said, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Guys, once again, Jesus, in contrasting the narrow way with the broad way, isn't, listen, isn't contrasting religion with atheism, materialism, hedonism or secularism in other words he isn't contrasting religion with non-religion he is contrasting false religion with true religion and if you don't get that if, if you don't understand that you won't get the correct interpretation of what jesus is saying that both of these roads claim to lead to god and that is why jesus is warning us to beware to beware you can help me off the top of my head. I can't think of another place. He said beware, except in this passage with regard to false teaching, false prophets. I could be wrong. I know he said it here. And if he did use it other places, it, was, it wasn't as common as you may think. He only used it with things that could rob you of your eternal destiny, keep you out of heaven. He said, be on guard of things, be watchful for things, but beware of those that would steal your soul. And that's why he is warning us to beware, because even though both are marked this way to heaven, only one road leads there, and that's, of course, the narrow way. You see, guys, Satan is a master uh, at religious deception, even disguising himself as an angel of light to deceive. Comes as an angel of light. A good guy. One of those white ascended masters that those in, you know, Eastern mysticism believe in. You can read 2 Corinthians 11, verses 12 to 15. But Satan knows. And by the way, he does some of his best work, his best deceptions, 
among people who do believe in God. For them he sends down the wrong road. But he knows that most people will never be atheists, and therefore he accommodates them, the religious among us, with religious lies and deceptions. And as such, he's the one who paints this way to God in heaven over his broad gate. And as Jesus said, there are many who choose to go in that gate. And so to say it again, here in these verses, Jesus isn't contrasting atheism with religion. He's contrasting true faith with false faith. The narrow gate, guys, represents Jesus and the gospel, whereas the broad gate represents the false religion of the scribes and Pharisees who were preaching a system of outward rituals, ceremonies, and good works as a way for a person to get to God. Any other religion would fit in that category. There's only two religions in the world. You realize that. There is the religion of human achievement and the religion of divine accomplishment. And that's it. And right there you have the two, the two roads, the two gates. What is the religion of human achievement? That's religion. All the things that people do to earn God's favor and eventually earn a place in heaven. What is the religion of human, of divine accomplishment? That's where God so loved the world that he sent his son to come into the world, become one of us, die on the cross, rise from the dead, and pay our debt. And now is offering us eternal life based on what Jesus did for us, not what we do for God. When Jesus talked about the narrow gate being the only way that would lead, that leads to eternal life, many commentators say the best modern translation of narrow gate would be that of a turnstile. The Greek implies that only one person at a time can enter. And that's important because some people are under the illusion that um, they enter heaven as a group. What do I mean? Well, because they were born into a particular denomination or they live in a nation like ours, whether they were born into America or they were born into a denomination, they think that that automatically makes them a Christian. The Jews believe because they were born of Abraham, that automatically made them saved. They believed in a kind of a national salvation. So a lot of people here in this country that believe the same thing about America. Are you a Christian? Well, I'm an American. I'm not Jewish. I'm not a Muslim. Of course I'm a Christian. Well, read John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. People are not born into the family of God because... They come from a certain family or were baptized as a child, infant, and so on. I'll let you read that on your own. But no one gets to heaven as part of a group. They have to come to Jesus one at a time. Salvation is a personal decision that every person must make for themselves, a decision that no one can make for you. Look, let me say this. Entering the narrow gate is easy. Walking its path is difficult. What do I mean? Well, entering into Jesus for salvation is easy. You believe on him, you receive him as your Lord and Savior, you're a Christian. Again, that part is easy. Living for Jesus in a world that is hostile towards him and those who represent him, uh, that's hard. That's the hard part. It's not easy to live for and represent Jesus in a fallen world. In fact, it's very difficult and it's getting more difficult with every passing day. Let me read to you again Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, where Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. 
And then he goes on to say, narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life. Look, guys, we're not all taking different roads that lead to the same place. There are actually two destinations where people will spend eternity, one of two. The word destruction in Matthew 7:13, of course, is a word that refers to hell. One author said, and I quote, It is the desti destination of all religions except the way of Jesus Christ. And it is the destiny uh, of all those who follow any way but his. It is the destination and destiny of perdition, hell, and everlasting torment. Then he quotes Psalm 1, verse 6, The way of the wicked will perish. Look, guys, and we're, we're done. Just give me a minute. A person can choose what gate they enter, but they cannot choose the destination that gate will lead to. Finally, there are two groups of people traveling on these two roads. Jesus said concerning the wide gate, many are those who enter by it. As for the narrow gate, he said, few are those who find it. The reason so few find the narrow gate is because, listen now, they're not looking for it. They're not looking for it. It's not because it's hidden from them. I mean, the gospel is well known in our country. It's just that the broad gate looks so much more appealing and inviting than does the narrow gate. So much so that, and by the way, the narrow gate is yeah, the way of Christ and the cross. There's a lot of folks that want to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow Jesus. But they still want to go to heaven. So when they hear the gospel, the true gospel, where they have to relinquish control of their lives to another, a master, a, the Savior, Jesus Christ, the King, and take up their cross and deny themselves to follow in Jesus' footsteps, oh no. No, 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 that's, that's too hard. Uh, is there another way out there? Oh yeah, the devil says, oh, there's all kinds of ways. Choose one. You know, pick whatever you want. doesn't matter. As long as you have faith in something. So the, the narrow gate has never really even taken seriously or considered as a viable option for many. Few who find it because they're not looking for it, the majority, right? The sad reality is that most religious people are headed not for heaven, but for hell. Jesus called his true disciples a little flock. The word little is a word we get the English word micro from, which means something very small. True believers have always been a small group in a world full of religious people. Uh, there's a saying, maybe you've heard it. Could the majority be wrong? Majority can't be wrong. If enough people believe in something, it has to be true. Right? Heard that? I suppose if you're looking for a restaurant, the more people that say the food is great, I'd probably go there. If you're looking for salvation, don't listen to the crowd. I know when it comes to salvation, they're absolutely wrong. And the reason is that the broad way is the natural choice from a human point of view because by nature, now by our fallen nature, we always prefer sin to righteousness. Even as Jesus said, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are what? Because they're evil. They want to do evil. They want to practice evil. And yet, it's interesting, was it Proverbs 26? Pretty much everybody still thinks they're a good person. The pride in the human heart blinds people to their true self and, and causes them to think that because they're better than somebody else, they're a good person. No, you're just better than that sinner. He or she might be a lot worse than you, but you're still not as righteous as Christ. 
And yet their pride tells them that they're good enough to get to heaven. And any talk about a narrow way, a cross, any talk of sin and judgment angers them. It angers them. Let me read to you a true uh, a, a letter. True, this really is a letter. I kept it for a bunch of years because it really makes this point. It was a letter. Billy Graham was in Australia, and he was doing a series of campaigns. And so, this is a uh, was a letter that appeared in a daily newspaper in Melbourne, Australia, expressing clearly the attitude of a person who is obviously on the broad way to destruction. Here's what he wrote. And I quote, After hearing Dr. Billy Graham on the air, viewing him on television, and reading reports and letters concerning him and his mission, I am heartily sick of the type of religion that insists my soul and everyone else's needs saving, whatever that means. I have never felt that I was lost, nor do I feel that I daily wallow in the mire of sin, although repetitive preaching insists that I do. Give me a practical religion that teaches gentleness and tolerance, that acknowledges no barriers of color or creed, that remembers the aged and teaches children of goodness and not sin. If in order to save my soul, I must accept such a philosophy as I have recently heard preached, I prefer to remain forever damned. Wow. Sad letter. But the truth is that man understood the choices. He just made the wrong one. And tragically, the tragedy is that multitudes are on the same road with him. Even more tragic, they think they're headed for heaven when on the day of judgment, Matthew 7, verses 21 to 3, they're going to stand before Jesus and hear him say, I never knew you, depart from me. Oh, but Lord, we believed in you. We went to church. We even prophesied and worked miracles and so on. And Jesus said, he will say to them, I never knew you depart from me, you who practice sin. Guys, there's a lot of lies out there. Some not that important, you know, like if you lie about your weight on your driver's license. They don't know I'm not 165. And 6'2". No, no, I, I didn't do that. Uh you know, some lies, God call, considers all lies a big deal. All liars will have their part in the lake of fire, the Bible says. It's just that there's a lot of lies that don't really impact our lives like others. This is one of those lies that will not only impact your life, it will determine your eternal destiny. There is only one way that will get you into heaven. His name is Jesus Christ. And he loves you. And he died to save you. And anyone, I don't care who it is, no matter how bad your life has been lived, you can come to him and receive him. And he promises he'll forgive you. Those who come to me, I will in no wise turn away, he said. He will forgive you. He will embrace you. You'll become his child. You'll be a member of his kingdom forever. The choice is yours. I pray you make the right choice. That leaves us with one more lie we need to look at. The number one lie Satan deceives the people of this world with. Come back next week. <laughs> and and it'll give you some runners up. Lies that didn't make the top ten list, but we want to give special mention to.
not in a good way. So come on back. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth, Lord. It is a light that shines uh, in the darkness and, and lights our path that we walk in your truth and we are, are guided all the way into your kingdom. We praise you, Lord. We pray that you would give grace that people would not be taken in anymore by these lies of the devil, especially your people, Lord. We know the truth. We ought to know better. Give us grace to run to your word, to find out what the truth is on certain subjects and not listen to others who don't have a clue but trying to tell us uh, things that are just not of you. We thank you. We ask you to continue to bless this next study in your word and beyond. We thank you, Lord. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.